0: Good evening, and welcome to a brand new series. This is a three-part on the Vilna Gon, and we are honored to be sitting here with both Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi Tetz. Thank you very much both for taking out your valuable time to do yet another podcast series on historic and very relevant figures in Jewish history. Of course, the Vilna Gon, there's no end to what we can talk about, but between the two of you, we're going to somehow put this into a three-part series. Rabbi Hirsch, if we can start with you, who was the Vilna Gon?
1: So I just wanted to mention as a heading that this series is Ilud Nishmas Sara Basnach, whose Yardzeit was on the 21st of Teves. I guess it's now become tradition for me to go first. Rabbeinu Elio, known as the Gon of Vilna, or by the acronym Hagra, for Hagon Rav Elio, was born in 1720 and died in 1797 in Lithuania. But obviously, as you mentioned, to cover the life of somebody as great and as prolific as the Vilna Gaon would need a while. So I guess between us, we will take particular elements and highlight them. Was that considered a long lifespan for that time? Yes. Yeah. Now, one question needs to be asked at the outset. What made him into the towering figure within Jewish history? After all, he never published any Sforim during his lifetime. He was never the rov of any community, the head of a yeshiva or of a bezdin. He rarely spoke publicly. He didn't write halachic responser to other rabbonim of the generation. And he had no students in the classical sense of the word. He did have students, though. Very well-known ones, surely. No? So I mean people who studied under him for periods of time. You know, if, if you take his most famous disciple, the Raphaim of Olajin, So, Rupheim had studied under the Shagas in Volojin. He used to come to Vilna when he had a number of questions and spend days there, maybe sometimes weeks, and then he'd go home. And for most of that period, Rupheim was a rabbi in his own right of a city. So, yes, he was a genius in Torah, the Gon, but he impacted not only the Lithuanian world, but all of what is nowadays called the Shiva world, modern orthodox, Haredi, religious Zionist. If you say Torah as a paradigm, it's the Gone. And even in the Jewish world at large, so much so that he is claimed by many groups as their own secular groups, which is, of course, ironic in the extreme because the Gon represented the most committed form of Torah lifestyle and would be sensitive to any deviancies. In a way, similar to the Rambam. And we will look at why this was so. Perhaps we'll start by giving a bit of a background first to Vilna itself. So, although reports date back to 1340, the first official records are from 1527, when the non-Jews of Vilna obtained from the Polish king the right to prevent Jewish settlement there. But a number of individuals, individual Jews, are found there by the middle of the 16th century. And a wooden shawl is built in 1573. The first information regarding an organized Jewish community is from... 1568 and in the response of the marshal we find him mentioning that three rabbis in vilna signed on a document on the 7th of Shvat in uh, what is 1556 we find a similar line in a truva of the bach in 1563 and three rabbis means that there was somewhat of a, a vibrant community there obviously how many people were living there well Let's say by 1600 or thereabouts, there are probably 3,000 Jews out of a population of probably 15,000. And the main cities in Lithuania at the time were Brisk, Vilna, Grodna, and Pinsk. Now, the kings and rulers of Poland and Lithuania were generally accepting and tolerant towards the Jews, but the non-Jewish population was extremely hostile, and Vilna Jewry had a particularly difficult existence. In 1634, the Jews in Vilna were attacked; their property was looted. In 1635, in particular, the mob destroyed the shul, and they tore apart eighteen cipheritera. And there were attacks in 1639, 1641. And then later in that century, even though Vilna escaped the Khmelnytsky massacres of Tachvatat, 1648 49, in 1655, though, Vilna was invaded by Russian soldiers and nearly all of the Jewish inhabitants fled the city. During the Russian occupation, the Jewish quarter was burnt down and the wholesale exile of Jews from Vilna is referenced in the preface to the Be'er HaGoyla of Ramosha Rifkes. He writes that on the 23rd of Tammuz, in 5.415, which is 1655, he says, "...the whole congregation fled for its life from the city of Vilna. Those who had provided themselves with conveyances carried their wives, children, and their small belongings in them. But those who had none travelled on foot and carried their children on their backs." He, by the way, was the great-grandfather of the Vilna He fled to Amsterdam, where he completed his commentary on the Shulchan although he eventually did return to Vilna. And among the exiles from Vilna were prominent rabbis, including the Shach, the uh, indispensable commentary on Shulchan Aruch, and the Shah Ephraim. Eventually, the Russians were expelled and the Jews returned, but they continued to suffer from the local population, In 1664, they were banned from being involved in the fishing trade, from being silversmiths, goldsmiths. In 1687, a riot was created by Jesuit students who were particularly hostile and by artisans and shopkeepers who wanted to keep out any competition. Yet, by 1690, there are 227 Jewish families resident in the Jewish quarter. So
0: from then on, things calmed down.
1: No, they got worse. In 1708, Vilna is taken by Charles XII of Sweden, and thousands died there from famine, pestilence, including a number, quite a number of Jews. And in fact, the Jews fell into such poverty that they were unable to save the main shul from being sealed off by creditors. And in the pinkas of the Stokogodela, the main charitable society, there's an entry for August 30th that reads, in those days, the shawl was closed and sealed for almost a whole year, and the cemetery was also closed. And then a terrible fire broke out in 1737, which, given the cramped conditions that they lived under, was basically almost inevitable. And the Vilna community had to turn to Jews abroad in, in Europe for help and equally in desperation to cover their debts the community was forced to consent to a compromise agreement with the local governor with stringent terms on what trades they could carry out where they could live and of course besides for all of this stuff they had to deal with the church always there perhaps Torah was the reward for their manifold difficulties
0: So I had the honor of joining you on a trip to Lithuania, to Vilna, quite recently. But if you can just explain to the listeners, for the ones that haven't been lucky enough to go yet, whereabouts did the Jews live in Vilna? Were they confined to an area?
1: Yes, very much so. Basically, three streets, almost, Zhidovska, Jew Street. There was the Butcher Street and St. Michael, which is also called the Glass Street. And these were connected sort of like a maze and there were cellars running throughout each building had accommodation for many families including in the cellars which were sometimes deep dark without a ray of light or almost a breath of air and they were nicknamed the the dwelling places of the devil and the accommodations themselves sometimes were just a living room and a bedroom and the cupboards in the walls Um, The door onto the street was made of iron and the windows were protected by iron shutters as a precaution against any pogroms. So, you know, life wasn't expansive there, shall we say. And then beyond all of that, we've mentioned in 1772, they had to deal with the fact that Lithuania was partitioned between uh, Russian well, Russia, Prussia, and Austria. And in fact, by 1795, Lithuania ceased to exist independently until the end of the First World War. Although, um, after the Gorn became well-known, Vilna was more of a destination, and their economic fortunes changed. And in a census taken by the Kehillah in 1784, we find 135 tailors, 88 furriers, 59 jewelers, cobblers, bakers, butchers, as you would expect, writers, musicians, and no fewer than 40 other occupations, including masons, tinsmiths, jewelers, fishermen, and brewers. That's all just to give you background to where. Now we come to the Gorn himself. It was during this very period from the mid 1740s until the late 1750s, while the Jews of Vilna struggled, that Raviglio locked himself in his room writing notes and commentaries to all the classical works, cabalistic, uh, Rabbinic, Biblical, and his achievements as a Torah scholar made him a symbol and a sort of a model of greatness in Torah scholarship. But what has to be understood is that these achievements represent only one aspect of who he was. The second aspect is seen through his austere and devout way of life. And this conduct earned the gone the name Hachosid, uh, which is... Often missed by people, you know, they just assume his biography is covered by his his learning and his genius. But even amongst Hasidic leaders whom he persecuted, there were those who acknowledged his status as one of and really the greatest scholar of his generation. The Balatanya, potentially his main rival almost, calls him Hagon Hachosid in writing on a number of occasions. This Kedusha element was as important as his study and is reflected in many ways in his Torah study the the idea of learning Torah Lishmo, which means for the untainted and pure purpose of connecting to God and hence it's unsurprising his total immersion every day for almost all of the 24 hours of the day, his hasmodah in study is used as the absolute representation of how Torah should be studied and lived. So, you know, it's not just his intellect or the breadth of his knowledge. Having a PhD without the purity of breathing and living Torah would have been almost meaningless. Was he at all
0: accessible? to the public
1: not really no in other words you could come across him and you could ask him a question but he did not have a public role as a rabbi or as you'd almost have to knock on his door and disturb him i'd say more than almost yes and then The irony is that after he achieves his fame, and particularly after he's died, as is the fate of all great people, everyone claims him as their own. So for his views on making Aliyah and living in Eretz Israel, we know that his Talmudim moved there with his encouragement. For that, he is claimed by secular Zionism. And for his views on secular learning and science, he's claimed by people who say he was the, the uh, avant-garde of the Haskalah and that he advocated this. And also
0: so many people claim to be descendants of his. Yes. We'll get to that. He was also very knowledgeable in other scientific disciplines, wasn't he?
1: Yes. But for him, anything that was not connected to or grounded in Torah was problematic. It's a very big difference between pure knowledge, theory, and application. For the Muskilim, there was no application to actual life. It's almost the intellectual thrill of discovery or the, the amassing of information. And it is no surprise that he taught and lived that the acquisition of knowledge needed to be achieved by effort, by hard intellectual work. That divine revelation was the encounter between human intellectual force and blood, sweat, and tears. That was the only path to real Torah, which accords with, you know, I don't know, the, the, the Talmudic teaching in Megillah, Yogato, V'loy, Altamin. Al-Tamin. It's impossible that if you toiled in Torah that you will not find, and therefore anyone can achieve it through effort. And equally... If you didn't toil, then what you discovered wasn't real terror. And he wore tefillin at all times, which gives you an understanding that he was fully focused. He was fully, you know, in the zone and he was opposed to any shortcuts to terror. And therefore, on a, so to speak, practical level, he refused to be taught by Magidim, by heavenly messengers, as he told his pupils well we've discussed the ramchal in the past
0: and it seems like a directly opposite approach
1: very much so yes yeah and of course the ramchal is living at the same time in italy and the ramchal acquires most of his terror that way although i guess today's terror world would see the pathway as being that of the gon but yeah it was a very very different approach and the outcome of the gon's refusal to be involved with magidim was a non-involvement with the world of elevating those who had sinned, except if they expended real effort in doing teshuva by way of example. So at one point, there was a dibuk in Vilna, which is a a spiritual force inhabiting somebody's body, a soul. And they brought the dibuk to be exercised by the groh. And now this account is, is not from some, you know, sort of Jewish storybook. It's an account from one of his Talmudim. But the Grah refused to get involved in anything that came from a spiritual place that wasn't pure. So the Besdin in Vilna had to deal with the Dibuk, And they used the opportunity. They asked this Dibuk, who are the greatest people of the generation? And the Dibuk said that the greatest is a person by the name of Rav Tzemach. Who was a hidden tzaddik, and it was he who eventually told the Vilna Gaon not to go to Eretz Israel. The Gaon had made plans to do so. The Dibuk said that the second greatest was the Vilna Gaon, and the third greatest was the Mezeret meaning the head of the Hasidic world. So you know, you put that mix together, and perhaps we start to understand how little we know about these great personalities. Now, the Gon's learning, unlike his contemporaries, let's say the Nodiby in Prague, who attended yeshivas, kolim, whatever you would call them in today's world, the Vilna Gon did not. And he didn't have an ongoing teacher like the Hasam Sofa in Frankfurt with Renossen Adler. So you're saying he was self taught? Based on Svarim, but yes, yeah, mainly. And he wrote prolifically, and his students published many of his works. He never published. Very rare, not for
0: the leader of a generation not to have his own teacher.
1: So we mentioned the Shagis Aryeh earlier. He also didn't. In those days back then, not so rare. But nevertheless, definitely not run of the mill. Now, the the Gon never published any of his own works. He had little interest in recognition. He wrote until he was 40. Afterwards, he didn't, except sort of, you know, footnotes. It is from then on the records of his Talmudim, because there was no person who was found who could write as fast as his mind churned out terror. We will see this more, the breadth and the the number of svarim next week. And he is often referred to by the name Kremer. Which derives from the occupation of a shopkeeper, since one of his ancestors who died in 1688 in Vilna made his living as such, even though he was the chief rabbi. And subsequently, some of the Gon's family adopted the surname, particularly the descendants of the Gon's brother, actually, which, coming back to what you said earlier, having that name doesn't guarantee illustrious ancestry. <laughs> And, of course, certain families believe they were descended from the Gorn, whereas they are descendant from the family, because that doesn't imply direct lineage. Anyway, in the 1730s, he moved from Vilna to Kedan, and he was married by 1740, so by 20, maybe by 18. In fact, the Gorn was married twice. His first wife was Hannah with whom he had three sons and four daughters, one of whom married the son of the Chaya Odom, of Rom Danzig, who was a uh, dine in Vilna. And after her death in 1782, the Gorn married a widow called Gittel. And in fact, the Gorn, having been married twice, has caused confusion because there are families who have a tradition of descent from the Gorn's second wife, despite the fact that Gettle bore no children to the Gorn. So they might be descendant from her, but not from her and him. (laughs) So at uh, 21, his eldest daughter was born. And it was very likely then that he followed in the path of many other great scholars by going into gollus, meaning wandering anonymously from town to town, to uh, perceive and experience a level of the real exile. Now, we don't know exactly the years, but given that between 1748 and 1770, he had a child every few years, as opposed to the period between 1742 and 1747 where he had no children it's likely that it was those five years that he was that he spent you know anonymously wandering through
0: europe it's fascinating considering the conditions they lived in in vilna in those days that they still had the need or other rabbis from different countries, so had the need to go out and feel like they were in exile. When you well, consider the, that, to the,
1: the one difference being that you literally don't know from one day to the next where you will have a meal, where you will have a roof over your head. It's completely dependent on putting yourself in the hands of Hashem. Right. Now, the interesting thing is, having spoken of his years of wandering in Gollus, is that the head of Hasidus, the Balshemtov, was also in Gollus for a number of years, but during the 1730s, ending in Meserich in 1740, just before the Gon went into Gollus. So they never met. And although the Gon studied at home on his own for most of his life, he wasn't a sort of a cloistered mystic, unacquainted with anyone living beyond the walls of his house because his travels as a pauper would have brought him to places like probably Frankfurt, Berlin, Amsterdam, and put him in contact with a wide range of individuals. I've heard
0: that his gollus was used to find other printings of the Talmud to work out the correct versions. Is there any
1: truth to this? So it's possible it is mentioned not at the time, but in sort of later biographical accounts, although some of the accounts are historically challenging. Elio Stern mentioned in his book, The Report, that the Gorn traveled throughout Europe to find rabbinic manuscripts and brings something mentioned in the name of Rabbi Yosef Sonnenfeld, that when the Gorn visited the Munich Library, he saw that famous manuscript of the Talmud, which is still there, But in that case, the manuscript only arrived in Munich in 1806. So, you know, it can't be quite that way. Challenging, Right. But that doesn't mean that he didn't use his time to do so. Now, the Gon had a cousin called Elio Pesilus, who had a stocker fund with which he supported the Gorn's study, because, you know, during this period of time, the financially strapped Jewish Kehillah in Vilna, they wouldn't have been able to provide him with a uh, stable stipend, even though they recognized his greatness. And then in 1758, the Groz father died, and Peselus donated the funds to create a Medrush for the Gon next to the rebuilt main shawl. And the Gon was allowed to learn and teach, and allowed to have a minion there But only during the week and Shabbos and Yontav, but not on Yomim Neroim, which means that the Gorn didn't doven in his own shawl on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So where then? Probably in the main shawl. And they also allowed on the roof of that building, they could build a sukkah. And Sukkos was a time where there was more almost availability to speak to the gone. Once again, you wouldn't have had just the average Joe Cohen turning up and doing so. But nevertheless, and it's during Sukkos that the story happens, which uh, Rabbi Solov Shlov recounts in his Sefer, that having told his Talmidim that everyone should master one Masechda, one tractate of Shas. So one Talmid comes and says he has sort of mastered Masechta's sukkah. So the Gon says to him, how often do Rav Meir and Rav Yehuda argue in this tractate? How many mechleikas of Rav Kiv and Rub Tarifin? And the Talmud had no idea. So the Gon himself answered the question and went through the whole Masechta, Bavli, Yerushalmi, Tesefta, etc. He showed that there were 85 cases where the Gomorrah describes a sukkah that was invalid and 91 where they bring a type of sukkah that was kosher. Because Sukkah written chaser means defectively, so you only write samach chaf he is numerically 85, and Sukkah written mole with a vav is 91. And that's like a, a tiny indication as to how the Gorn knew Torah. Not just information, it's categorized with complete recall of each Talmudic opinion anywhere. Now, his first involvement in public affairs occurs in the late 1740s, and that's the Ger He was a member of nobility, a non-Jew Catholic who converted to Judaism. And as bad as it was for Jews to bring someone who converted to Christianity back to Judaism, it was equally bad to allow somebody who was a Christian to become a Jew. They were both considered capital crimes. And the Gorn therefore advised this individual to go to a much smaller town because they are more likely to find him, the church, if there are lots of people around So he lives for a number of years in this smaller place or in a number of smaller places, it's not quite clear, but eventually, through various stories, he is brought back and arrested, brought back to Vilna. And the Gorn offers to get him out of jail in ways that the Gorn could have arranged, but the Gerd refused. He said, you know, this is my mission for which I was brought into this world. But he said to the Gon, there's one thing I'm upset about, that I don't have any children. So the Gon told him the poshuk, which translated means, I, says Hashem, am the father to those people who don't have fathers, and I am a child to those people who don't have children. And in 1749, on the second day of Shvurs, the Ger was taken to be burnt at the stake at a public square in Vilna, he was led through the small Jewish quarter, and the gon shouted out, "Lech go with alacrity," because the ger was unsure should he walk very slowly, because every moment of life is precious, or should he go with simcha, with a spring in his step, because he's about to carry out the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem of dying al Kiddush Hashem, and the gon arranged for a Jew to dress as a non-Jew. And after this, Arcado, to bribe the guards so that he could gather up some of the ashes and one surviving small limb of the Geret to bury in the Beisach Forest, obviously in absolute secrecy because the Christians would never have allowed this. And equally, obviously, they couldn't put a real tombstone, a matseva there because the Christians couldn't know about it. But every year on the art site, in the main shawl in Vilna, they would be Muzkir in, in Yizker, the name of this righteous convert, Avram ben Avram. It's
0: just um, taking me back to the trip where you showed us... and The square, oh, yes, yeah. The square and the, the route that he was walked down.
1: Right, correct. But the reason that this story was only passed down orally is because they were too scared to put it in writing for many years afterwards. Now, after the 1750s, especially once he turned 40. His involvement in public issues grew exponentially, and of course he then did battle, so to speak, with Hasidus. Yet, as we will see, in three cases he tried unsuccessfully to convince his own people to adopt a particular idea, and he attempted to go to Eretz and turn back, and we will see this all next week and the week
0: after. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That was a fascinating insight into the Volnagon's life and times. And I'd like to turn our attention now to Rabbi Tetz. Thank you very much again for coming. It's always a pleasure to have you, but all the more so, our followers really appreciate when yourself and Rabbi Hirsch, they give us two different dynamics into our ancestors and important figures in Jewish history. So we'd like, if possible, to request you to share with us some thoughts and ideas of the Volnagon.
2: Yes, thank you, Rabbeiner. Thanks for hosting this program again. And thanks to Rabbi Hirsch for his deep and uh, broad historical analysis. Yes, I'd like to mention one or two ideas in the thought process of the gone. Of course, you've picked up already from Rabbi Hirsch that he was an absolutely stellar cosmic personality. In fact, you you may or may not know that has often been debated whether he could be compared, in fact, to a previous set of generations. You know, the axiom in Jewish history is that we decline over time, the Yerudas de Adairis, descent or decline of the generations. And the Gon of Vilna, of course, fits solidly into what we call the Akhrenim from the 15th century to the present. Nevertheless, it's been debated, and his star pupil, Reb of Olojen, was asked, could your Rebbe be compared to the Rambam, of course, which is going 500 years out of sync? And of course, although the conclusion may be no, but nevertheless, to ask that question about him shows that he was you know, way, way out of his time frame in terms of genius. And let's remember that when we call the Gon the genius, because Gon means genius, we're talking about geniuses by geniuses, not geniuses by you and me. You, with all due respect, I mean, I'm sure you are. But, but when we talk about genius, we're talking about very, very few people in Jewish history are called, are called genius. And of course, he was an encyclopedic genius. Turning our attention to his writings as opposed to his history, the writings are extremely, extremely extensive. In fact, I think it's fair to say that he wrote about everything. Probably the only thing I can think of that he did not write about, probably the only thing, is the numbering of the mitzvot. You know, we have learned debates throughout the ages about how you count the mitzvot. We all know we it's all agreed that there are six hundred and thirteen commandments that the Gemara says clearly, but how do you count the mitzvot? Is tfillin, for example, one or two? Sephardi make only one blessing on the tefillin. We Ashkenazim make a hesitant two, shall I say. And of course, if you count tefillin as two mitzvahs, then which other one do you not count as a mitzvah? So this is a very learned area. How do you count the mitzvahs? And it's the one thing, amazingly, that God never wrote about. I think probably because it has relatively little practical output. We all know the 613. We'll pull on our tefillin, both on our head and our arms. Perhaps whether you make a blessing or not, or two blessings may be a relevant outcome, but it is one of the things that he never wrote about, but basically everything else from the deepest Kabbalah, analysis of the Sefi Sira, which is very, very early Kabbalistic work, analysis of the Safar which is early, let alone the Zohar, he has extensive and very readable commentaries on those. He also has some rather unreadable commentaries, so esoteric that they are extremely difficult to fathom on the Talmud and various other things. But if, if you get a set of the writings of the Gohan, I mean, it is unbelievably extensive. I don't know if Rabbi Hirsch emphasized this, but he is also a well-known mathematician. He goes in mathematical history by the name of Kramer, right? In fact, there's even a Kramer's Theorem or Kramer, K-R-A-M-E-R. Dagon was famous not only for his learning in Torah, but also for his espousing of the so-called seven handmaidens of Torah, namely music, geometry, mathematics, rhetoric, logic, astronomy. You know, these are the handmaidens of Torah. And of course, he was master of them all. Being an accomplished mathematician, very interesting one of the things that he did was he translated to Euclid now Euclid's book of mathematics is probably the most popular and most often printed book in the history of mathematics ever since the time of Euclid and the gone, whether he translated it himself into Hebrew or had it translated I'm not sure but he certainly was behind that work and for those who are interested someone in Israel recently has done a very beautiful modern edition You know, some of the terms used in geometry in those days in the 1700s were not exactly the same conventions that we use today for angles and for, you know, those sorts of things. So he sort of modernized it and brought it up to modern terminology, but it's eminently readable and fascinating and not only contains amazing mathematical ideas and novelties, also some Torah applications of mathematics. So I was just going to ask, is everything he did connected to Torah or was he such a genius that he had the full breadth of knowledge and possibly dipped into other forms of wisdom? Well, as I said, he certainly was encyclopedic in terms of the seven handmaidens of Torah, which cull and bring together all of human wisdom. He certainly was a master of philosophy, but it was all through the eyes of Torah. In fact, he comments in one place on the Rambam's philosophical idea quite acerbically and quite uh, negatively on a certain assertion of the Rambam. So, he certainly had a a literally unbelievably encyclopedic and and deep mind. Let me share with you one of his mathematical insights, if I may. This you'll find in his mathematical work, which is known as Ayel Mushulash. again, Euclid was one work that he was bought, but he wrote his own book of mathematics, and it's known as Ayel Meshulash, which is, how do you translate that? Ayel is some sort of a, a deer, but of course it's a play on words. Meshulash means a triangulated, and of course, as we know, Pythagoras and the Pythagorean theorem and much of geometry is ba- is based on that. And of course, in the 1800s when he was writing, a lot of mathematics was more geometrically presented, and even the what we use algebraic proofs for today were very often presented in geometric form, and indeed the Talmud presents algebraic issues with geometric proofs. Very interesting. And, of course, it's very user-friendly because a geometric proof you can actually picture. Here's one mathematical idea that Degon wrote, deeply philosophical and mathematical. My task, after all, in this podcast is to share some of his thinking and some of his ideas in particular. And while we're mentioning mathematics, here is one. The Torah says in two places, actually, in, in, in Nach. King Solomon was commanded to build a circular pool. This is known as the Yamshel Shlomo. This is a deep mystical idea apart from being a structure in the temple. Very interesting circular pool which had a square depth. Very, very interesting and a lot of Kabbalistic material is written about it. But the Goman comments on the verses in the Torah that stipulate or specify the dimensions of this pool. And one is Melachim. This is brought in the in sukkah and dav or Dav-Zayin somewhere around there. <coughs> the Gomorrah quotes this verse about in connection with a round sukkah. <clears throat> and what the verse says is, you shall construct this pool around and it shall have a circumference v'kav, ba-ama, which we would translate in modern English as a circumference, a line circumferential around this pool should be 30 amas around, 30 cubits, let's call it 30 times 50 centimeters, something like that. Vekav, and from lip to lip, or let's call it from edge to edge, Now, that is very interesting. It should be 10 amas across. So this verse presents three very challenging problems. The first problem, which of course one wouldn't know from our verbal discussion, but when you look in the text, you'll see it, is that the word for circumference, kav, is spelt and pronounced differentially. Now, this is known as aksivanakrii. Very often in the Torah you have a word with that we have a tradition to write one way but pronounce another way. And that, of course, raises the question, why would, why would that be? And the underlying concept is whenever the Torah writes a thing one way but instructs us to pronounce it another way, we're talking about a differential between the thing as it is in hard fact and the thing as it's expressed in the world. Now, very often, of course, in most cases, the way a thing is is the way it's expressed. But when the Torah differentiates between those two, it means that there's a way of writing a thing which is specifying it, but the way we express it in the world, in practical terms, may not be the way it is, the way it is written. Interesting differential. And here's an example: the word for circumference is written "v'kav" and it's circumference, but when it's written and pronounced, and you'll see in any Tanakh, you'll see on the side the word spelt differently than it's pronounced, "kavva," which means it's circumference. So here you have a differential between two words: one written and one pronounced. One of them is the word kav, which means circumference, and one of them is kavva, which means its circumference. We write one, but we say the other. First question of the golden of why is there a difference between the way circumference is written and the way it's pronounced? Second question is, and I'm sure your listeners or our listeners are burning to answer this question themselves, and that is that if you specify the circumference of a circle and the diameter, there's something very wrong. No self-respecting engineer would ever specify both the circumference and the diameter circles have a ratio of approximately three to one if you give me the diameter you have specified the circumference and if you give me the circumference you specify the diameter one must follow the other and since Torah never duplicates or provides unnecessary words this is completely unacceptable rav mena if you're an engineer tasked with building a circle and i i condescended, I deigned, I descended, to give you both the circumference and the diameter, you'd be highly offended. Give me one or the other. Give me the circumference, the diameter follows, give me the diameter. So that's the second question. And the third question, the most obvious one is, it's wrong. Because if it's 10 across, it could not possibly be 30 around. If it's 10 across, it must be 31.415 around. And if it's 30 around, it could not possibly be 10 across. It must be 9.823, whatever it is. And therefore, not only is unnecessary information given, but it's wrong. And of course the bottom axiom, the most basic axiom in all of Torah is that Torah is true. And therefore the Gon's question is, how could it possibly be, specify a circle in the Torah with wrong specifications? Those are the three questions asked by the Gonavilna, of Ilna. And his answer is really, really beautiful. His answer is this. He says, the written version of the specification of the circle is the way it is. The way it's pronounced is the way we need to express it in the world. Meaning this, let's look at the written way the Torah writes this word. Well, when we look at words in Torah in mathematical terms, we look at gematria, don't we? Because we know that every letter in Torah has a number two. Says the Gorn, look at the two words kavah and kav. Kavah is 111 and kav is 106. Says the Gorn, and as I speak, I'm pulling out my calculator and I encourage all our listeners to do the same. Says the Gorn of Ilna, take your calculator. Divide 111 divided by 106. And then he says, multiply the answer by three. Because after all, you, what you are doing is, for every one across, so to speak, you have three around. He goes into more detailed explanation. And if you do that calculation, the result is, and I read, I quote, 3.1415, etc. cetera. Hmm, very interesting. <laughs> says the gun. you see when the torus specifies the ratio of the circumference to the diameter, what you get is very close. Of course, you cannot specify this in a decimal exactly. So it's a non-recurring decimal. But you get at least four or five decimal places of accuracy. In other words, the Torah is hinting to you in its written form the correct ratio. But then the Torah instructs you to express it with an approximation. One in three. And in fact, anyone who's familiar with Talmud knows that any time there's a mitzvah of doing anything round, we always use the rough approximation of one in three. What's the meaning of this, says the Any engineer or builder knows. Any person who executes a project in the physical world knows. You always need to specify your tolerances. You know, if you're building a table a couple of tenths of an inch out, you'll be okay. But if you're building a 747, a couple of tenths of an inch out is going to mean inches out by the time you get to the tail and that plane won't fly. And if you're shooting for the moon, a couple of tenths of an inch is zillions of miles off target by the time you get to the moon. Each physical project needs a specification. And the Torah needs a specification of mitzvahs. When the Torah commands us to make in square, does it mean square by the naked eye? Square by putting your pencil there? Does square mean using a micrometer gauge? How square? The answer is, this is the place where the Torah tells you what the physical accurate measurement is and how close an approximation hashem expects you to get and if you work it out it's about a three percent discrepancy which means that when you make your tefillin swear the tolerance is two or three percent and when king solomon was told to build a pool 10 across and 30 around that is a deliberate approximation and of course the talmud always uses one to three in terms of constructing around sukkah or carving out fence posts that have to have a certain dimension in arovin all the places the torah talks about the ratio of pi it talks about 1 in 3 therefore says the of Vilna, all three are resolved there's a differential between the expression and the written form to tell you what it is very closely in written form but when you express it do it in the world you don't need to achieve that accuracy because you can never achieve perfect and total accuracy and therefore a seemingly unnecessary ratio or number is given both diameter and circumference to tell you that they need not agree, because all we need is an approximation of three to one. So that's a beautiful insight of the gon trading on his Torah knowledge and his mathematical knowledge. And you'll find it printed in Ayol Shulash along with Euclid. It takes
0: very big shoulders to say that all the dimensions in Torah have a three uh, percent.
2: Indeed. Well, let's approach it this way. First of all, we know you can never be perfectly accurate. So it's absolutely axiomatic without any verses that there must be some level of accuracy that you can achieve. And then the question comes, what level of accuracy? Says the Goan, I will show you the verse in the Torah that tells you. After all, why would the verse stipulate a diameter and a circumference completely unnecessary? This must be the place, says the Goan, that is giving you this measure of accuracy and indeed had the shoulders to do that.
0: I'm sure some would say as a, this could be a parable for life in general. Although we tend to strive for perfection, the term might give us a percent or two off because perfection is impossible in, uh, uh, inside the uh,
2: man, I'm not sure that girl would agree with you on that level, but um, we have other sources that indicate that one never achieves perfection, but all one is obliged to do is get as close as you can. Thank you very,
0: very much indeed, both of you. That was brilliant, and I hope to see you both here next week for part two. As usual, any reviews, any comments, any questions, please do send to podcasts at jle.org.uk and we'll happily address them. And thank you both for taking the time to come out again.